the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. One of the key roles of sport during the Cold War was that it became, in the words of George Orwell, war minus the shooting. It offered high stakes, high prestige, public relations victories on a global scale. When East met West in a vital sporting encounter, the world held its breath. Tim Naftali is a hugely respected commentator on Cold War history and the author of a prize-winning book on Khrushchev, Castro and Kennedy called One Hell of a Gamble. As well as that, he's the founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. So there's probably very little you don't know about Cold War sports history. Tell us something, Tim, about the key sporting encounters. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast might be surprised at the extent to which the Cold War rivalry um, replicated itself uh, on playing fields and on ice, in ice rinks and places like that. The tension also wasn't simply between the East and the West. Sometimes inter-alliance rivalries played out um, in sporting matches. For example, in 1956, blood came up in the water when the Hungarian water polo team played the Soviet water polo team uh, in the Olympics. Um, This was after the Soviet uh, intervention in Hungary. Uh, So sport is a way, in a sense, of uh, it's it's war by another means, to quote Clausewitz (laughs) instead of Orwell. Sports was also a source of peril. It wasn't just also a challenge for societies uh, in the sense of their national prestige and, and the myths that they told their people. Sports was also, an, um, these were venues where um, people could leave their country and express a preference for a different country. Uh, this was a challenge much more to the Eastern Bloc than to the Western Bloc in the Cold War. Nevertheless, it was important to keep in mind that each time the Soviets and the East Germans and the Hungarians and any other member of the Eastern Bloc came to an international sporting event, there was the possibility that somebody would defect to the West. They were, in a sense, taking a risk. And as the, when, once the Cold War ended and as some archives began to open, we, be, we saw the um, lengths to which these countries went to try to prevent their own athletes from defecting. Um, it shows you the, really the insecurity of these countries. On the one hand, they felt they could succeed in international sports competition. On the other they sense that their elite athletes would have preferred to compete in the West. So as we learn more about what was going on in the East during the Cold War in the Eastern Bloc, we really see that for those countries participating in international sporting events were not only an opportunity, they posed a great risk. One of the sort of fascinating elements of, uh, of Cold War sports history is that at the moment where the Eastern Bloc seemed to be absolutely unbeatable. 
in international competitions, that that moment was also the moment at which the entire system was on the verge of collapse. So the East Germans do phenomenally well in 1988. They come second in the Olympics, Summer Olympics, and the very next year their regime collapses. So in a sense, sports had the, 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 the communist leadership, the, the sort of the Eastern Bloc leadership, had assumed that sports was a symbol of the vitality of their own societies. In the end, it turned out that they had created these artificially robust sports programs that far exceeded in strength and success their own societies. And their, so their sports programs actually survived their societies. East Germany collapses. The, the East Germans managed to create the sports superpower they craved without actually creating a society that could survive. One of the examples I was interested in talking to you about was Cuba, which of course was a, a phenomenal boxing nation. Oh, not just boxing. You had Alberto Guantarena, who was an excellent runner uh, in the 1970s. No, the, 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 the Cubans managed to, have managed to create a, a boxing, running, and baseball powerhouse. Sports represented a venue for struggle and competition in the Cold War. But sports did not turn out to be an indicator of the internal health of the countries that trained these sports people. The Cubans, despite severe economic difficulties, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, continued to produce superb athletes. The Cuban problem was the same problem as the European bloc countries it had, which was to keep their people because the Western market economy with its popular sports leagues was a huge draw to young men and women who wanted to make a better, not only a better life, not only wanted to live in a politically different system, but also wanted to make a better living. So the, these state-directed sports programs produced great athletes who ultimately did not wish to stay in the countries that had trained them. This was a fundamental problem for the Eastern Bloc countries. In the West, the challenge was, one, to compete against athletes who were more likely to be juiced than you were. That's not to say that doping didn't happen on, our, on the Western side. Of course it did. But the doping that occurred in the Eastern Bloc <clears throat> was state-sponsored doping whereas the doping that occurred uh, on the, in the Western countries was, by and large, to the extent it existed, it was wild doping, what's called wild doping. It was, it was done by individual coaches and individual athletes. So the, the challenge for the West was to maintain certain ethical standards while also being competitive with countries you suspected of juicing, of doping. It wasn't really until the end of the Cold War that that we all had the goods on these systems. But when people saw how well East Germany did and just the uh, muscular structure of the East German uh, men and women, it became quite obvious that something was going on that was, was not ethical. It was after the Cold War ended, of course, that we knew the extent to which the, the East Germans had dedicated themselves, had created, actually, the state had created a doping system uh, to ensure that East Germany won medals far beyond uh, what you would expect given their population. They weren't simply competing with the, the West. 
they were also competing within the Eastern Bloc nations for a, a level of, of prestige. They were an occupied zone initially um, as a result of World War II. And they not only wished to prove that they were the best German country, they wanted to prove they were the best communist country. So they, they maintained a secrecy about their doping program, not simply with regard to the West, but also uh, with regard to their Eastern allies. They, uh, they didn't let the Soviets know their secrets of doping. We talk here about sport in the Cold War being a frontier, uh, an area where East meets West. I call it, I, if, I, if I may, it's a dimension of a multi-dimension, it's, it's a dimension of a multi-dimensional uh, struggle. It's one dimension. It's a dimension that means a lot to more people than some of the other dimensions. You see, most, most people, understandably, aren't going to be that moved by diplomatic communications. They're not going to be interested in the, um, the beauty of the rhetoric that one side might use with another. Similarly, most people won't know about military moves. In fact, the way governments operate, they, they often signal each other by moving ships here and there or, or planes. Public either isn't told or isn't interested. But sports, now that's something that most members of the public will know about. So it's actually one of the great ironies. <laughs> we often use irony incorrectly, but I think this is a fair use of it. It's one of the great ironies of this particular part of Cold War history. It mattered more to more people and less to the most powerful people. The, the most powerful people often weren't interested in sports. And so they had to be reminded of the importance. Uh, some American presidents cared about sports. Uh, some Soviet leaders cared about sports. But not every American president did, and not every Soviet leader. Nevertheless, the American people, Soviet citizens, citizens of the, of the uh, Eastern European Soviet Empire, they actually cared a lot about sports. And the, the challenge for um, the leaders was how to derive the, the best morale from sports for your side without helping the other side. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter faced uh, quite a dilemma. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. The Soviets were supposed to be hosting the world at the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Do you send an American team to the capital of a country that has violated a set of, of international norms that you both had established in the 1970s when you were improving relations. Are you in some way rewarding them for bad behavior by allowing them to host you? At the same time, you have all those American athletes who get a chance only once every four years. You have, um, you have their parents you have their sporting clubs, you have their universities, their high schools, you have them, all of them, have, all of these people, all of these organizations have been, been working up to this um, quadrennial festival. Do you deny them that for political reasons? When should sports not be political? It was not an easy decision and there were a number of Americans in 1980 and not just the United States because the United States wasn't alone in this boycott, who did just felt, no, it's not a good idea. Let's just show that we're beyond politics, that sports can be. On the other hand, there was a sense that if the West wasn't careful, this would be like 
Berlin in 1936. You would be going to Moscow, and Moscow would be using this festival as a way of proving that their system was not only the best, but was totally legitimate. In the end, the United States boycotted the 1980 uh, Olympics uh, in Moscow. It's a shame that Afghanistan happened, not only for the Afghans and not only for Central Asia and South Asia, but it's a shame because it would have been interesting to see if there could have been a full Olympics in 1980, if, if the West would have completely gone. There were countries, some Western countries did go. I seem to think Great Britain went in 1980. Um, it would have been an interesting test of detente at that point for the, for the West to show up in Moscow, but it wasn't to be. Politics became more important than sports in 1980 because of Afghanistan. Do you think that the international competition between West and East improved sport as a whole, improved times, improved performances? Of course it did. When doping didn't dominate the competition, of course it did. There is no question that international competition uh, in hockey uh, changed hockey for the better. Hockey players are in much better shape than they were before. The Cold War was a two-edged sword for international sport. On the one hand, it did encourage the best of the best to, to play each other. On the other hand, this became so important for certain states that the ethics of sportsmanship was forgotten, good sportsmanship was forgotten, it was sacrificed, and people's lives were ruined. There was massive doping. There was also political pressure, psychological pressure. Uh, and, and, and not just psychological pressure for the East, although most of this occurred in Communist, the communist East, but there was also pressure placed on, on Americans and Canadians and others to, to defend the flag and prove the superiority of the Western way of life. So there was a psychological and physical cost to this struggle. That's the downside. On the upside, the international sporting competitions of the Cold War often served to relax tensions and often served to improve the performance, the sporting performance in the individual countries that contributed to the international sporting festivals. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.